The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So this is classic pastor changing the sermon text without telling anyone. Um, I'm going to add the first few verses to that psalm that Gary read for us. Uh, and we're going to look at Psalm 62 as our focus for this, uh, this Sunday morning. So I'll just read this again for us and put it in our minds. My soul finds rest in God, God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me, assault a man? Would all of you throw him down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Find rest, O oh my soul, in God alone. Put hope, or my hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your hearts on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. The word of the Lord. So everyone knows, this here in my hand, is a popsicle stick. This is Everyone knows what a popsicle stick is, right? A popsicle stick is something that is taken and when it's straight and when it's in one piece is plunged into that sweet and tasty ice cream, yogurt, sugar water, put in the freezer and then, you know, at, at, when it's all frozen, it's taken out and you can enjoy a nice tasty treat. I hope your mouth is watering right now. But when I start to bend this, if you can see, as I bend it, this popsicle stick is taking on what some people would call stress, right? And that stress is force applied to this popsicle stick. You can see it, it's bent. When this popsicle stick is being stressed, it is not able to do what it's supposed to do. It's not going to be able to be plunged into that tasty treat and thrown into the freezer for you to enjoy. The more stress that's added, the less likely this popsicle stick is going to be able to do what it's supposed to do. Right? So many times we feel like this popsicle stick. One day everything's going great. One day we're straight and true and able to do what we want to do, be who we want to be. We feel free, and then the next day, we feel like we're being bent. 
like we're being stressed, not able to live like we want to live, be who we want to be. There's so many examples of stress in our lives that I can't even begin to form a list of all of the things that cause us stress or anxiety or suffering. What's true, though, is that stress cannot be avoided. This is a common experience that all of us find ourselves in. When I did a Google search of the top stresses in our lives, came up with a list of five things. One, the death of a loved one. Two, getting married. Three, moving to a new home. Four, starting a new grade in school. Five, COVID-19. <laughs> we can probably come up with a list of another 20 or 30 or 40 things that are unique to each one of us or unique to our current moment that we're living in this COVID world, a divided world, a polarized world. Many of us had our eyes on the United States this week as we watched with eager eyes what would happen. All of us experience stress in our lives and so the question that comes up is how can we handle it? How can we cope with it? How can we conquer it? How can we live with it? Now, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor, but I'm a pastor. And I love the Bible. And Psalm 62 is an example of how ancient people have turned to God in their stress. Turn to God when they feel overwhelmed. See, David is feeling like this popsicle stick. He's bent, and he feels like he's at his breaking point. Right? We read it in the first part of this psalm. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless. With their hearts they curse. David describes in vivid detail people who are opposing him, who are adding pressure and stress and anxiety to his life. David calls these people enemies. We may call them bosses. We may call them bank accounts. We may call them false condemning voices in our heads that we can't quiet. We may call them the not-so-nice people on the school playground. We can all find ourselves in this psalm this morning. And it's an invitation to us as the stressed, the anxious, and the suffering people of this world to ask the question, what is our hope? Are we just destined to reach our breaking point and to be left bruised on the floor and broken? Or is there more than that for us? Is there another way? I love how one blogger I read this week put it. She said, this psalm gets us to ask the question, where is our ultimate source of well-being? That's so true. This psalm is getting us to ask, where is our foundation, our ultimate source of well-being? For David in his stress and suffering, his foundation is one thing, right? We read it in the opening, trust in the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. Trust in God as a refuge. And ultimately, trust in God as a God of power and a God of love. That's his foundation. Can we join 
David. And so let's talk about that this morning. Let's talk about trust under two, two points, two headings, the places of trust and the person of trust. So first, the places of trust. The way that David talks in this psalm, what makes a difference in, in our stress and overwhelming experiences is the places of our trust. And he names two places of trust that we are in constant battle with in our lives. Trust in God and trust in ourselves. Is our foundation for our well-being rooted in who God is and what he is doing or what we can do? In verse 9 and 10, he, David talks about this. He says, surely the lowborn are but a breath. The highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. And in these two verses, David opens the floodgates and overwhelms us with the many places of trust that we go to when we feel this pressure, this stress in our lives come on. And what are they? Well, two different places. Verse 9 talks about the lowborn being a breath and the highborn being a lie. And in, in, he, in the ancient Hebrew text, this was probably read by the, the people as one main thought. All of the, the two lines can be, can be saying, this, they're saying the same thing. And what they're saying is status. David is saying to himself and others, don't let yourself buy into the fact that status is a reliable coping mechanism, is a reliable place of trust. Thinking, you know, I can get through this because I've got money in the bank. Or I can, I can I'll be okay because I've got a job I can trust in. Or I've got a retirement portfolio set for me. I've got friends. I'm the popular one. I'll get over this. David warns us that status, lowborn, humble status, highborn, elite status, they're not an invincible foundation of trust when stress and anxiety come on to us. Don't look to your status. Don't look to your bank account. Don't look to your job to get you through. As I was thinking about this, I thought about how unfortunate it is, but it's an example for us. You know, we see so many high-profile people end their lives themselves. Recently, designer Kate Spade Chef Anthony Bourdain, both of these people, by our worldly standards, had it all, right? They had the status, they had the money, they had the job, they had the friends, they had the wealth, but they, they both didn't have answers for the questions that they were asking, the stress that they were taking on. I'm reminded of the actor Jim Carrey, who says, you know, famously, I wish everyone could be rich and famous so that they could see that being rich and famous is not the answer. So helpful for us who look sometimes at our status and say, if I only had this, then I would be okay. David warns us that that's not a good foundation to build our life on. The second place of trust that David raises is verse 10, where he says, do not trust in extortion. 
or put vain hope in stolen goods, though your riches increase. Don't set your heart on them. And to summarize this verse, uh, Bible commentator Derek Kidner says, you know, David is saying that our ability to control and manipulate life through our human power is worthless. So if the first verse 9, the lowborn and highborn are talking about status, the second is talking about our own ability to control and manipulate our lives. What we can take into our own hands. You know, I think we're quick to believe that our world is in a constant state of progress. Technological progress, moral progress, social progress. I mean, look at the things that we've overcome and put in the rearview mirror. The earth used to be flat, and now we know better, right? The people used to be allowed to own slaves, and we thought that that was okay, a moral thing to do, and now we've, we've discovered that, you know, we, we've learned that that's, that's not a way to treat all people with love and respect. You know, progress is inevitable, and we're on an upper trajectory. That's what we like to see. But optimism in this sense of progress seems to be dying off. I was pointed to a recent uh, article in the Washington Post written by Eric Uslaner, who's a social scientist, and he says that studies are showing that younger people in North America today, uh, if you find yourself aged, you know, 15 to 30, are probably the first generation to be certain that they are and will be worse off than their parents. The first, probably the first generation ever to be certain that they will be worse off than their parents. I think this really puts into question whether we can put any sort of hope or trust in our ability to control and manipulate the outcome. Can we really do that? Is our sense of progress that we're always going to be improving and getting better and moving forward really true? I mean, when was the last time you scrolled through Apple News and thought, wow, we can really control and manipulate our world? Like, this is being shattered right in front of us. It's not a strong foundation for our well-being. But Christians aren't these people, right? I mean, we don't build our foundation for our well-being in our status or our ability to control our lives. But I look at verse 8 in this psalm and see that David says, you people trust in God, meaning the people of Israel, the committed, the devoted, the God worshipers, just like you and me. David had to point to them and say, you also have to remember this. You have to take this to heart. You know, what if we are all unbelievers in some ways? What if we all struggle to build a foundation for our well-being in trusting God instead of trusting ourselves? What if we all have places in our lives, times in our lives, temptations in our lives to take things into our own hands, to look to our status, to who we are, to cope with, to overcome, to live with the stress, the anxiety, and the suffering that comes on. We all 
believe at times in our lives that God will treat us like a weed to be trampled on rather than a flower that he cares for, that he loves and cherishes. I think even this is the first sin. Right? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they took the fruit that God told them not to because they believed the lie that the, that the serpent told them. God won't provide. God doesn't care about you. You need to look out for yourself. For me, this comes clear to me that I myself am an unbeliever in this every time I balk at the idea of fasting. I don't need to fast, I think, ignoring the words of Jesus who said, you know, when you fast, not if you fast. I'm learning that fasting is actually a way of seeing the true Hayden, that I'm empty without God. I was listening to someone share their experience with fasting recently, and it hit me when they said, you know, when I fast, this person said, when I fast, I see deep down that I'm actually not a very patient person. I'm actually not a very content person. I'm not as independent or as strong as I thought I was. I'm actually weak. I'm an impatient person. I'm an angry person who medicates with food and drink and phone and social media likes and compliments. You know, fasting, ridding ourselves of coping mechanisms, uncovers the true foundation for our well-being. When I balk at fasting, it's actually because I put too much trust, too much of my well-being on what I can do. When stress comes into your life, what do you medicate with? Food? Phone? Facebook? Porn? Sex? Alcohol? Religion? To-do lists? Control? Exercise? I mean, the list goes on. We are medicating people. And when we do this, we show that we are all in ways unbelievers. We don't believe what Jesus has accomplished on the cross is true of us, true enough to deal with our past, true enough to, to help us in the present, true enough to secure our future, everything we could ever need. In this, we need to be honest about ourselves and recognize that we too need to turn to God the person of trust, away from the places of trust and towards the person of trust. And so this is exactly what David did when he experienced stress and suffering in his life. And he actually fasted. He fasted from talking, from reasoning, from trying to solve his problem on his own. He waited in silence for God. The ESV translates this more literally than our NIV, which, which says, my soul finds a rest in God. But, but that translation, the, the Greek, or, or sorry, the Hebrew, is actually talking about um, silence. In, in the ESV, it, it, it says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. David goes to the source of his well-being and waits. He doesn't grab the quickest, the easiest coping mechanism. He, he waits in silence for God because he knows that from him alone 
comes salvation. Waiting in silence is hard work, especially when we are experiencing stress and anxiety and suffering. This reminds me of C.S. Lewis when uh, his wife had passed away from cancer and he, he found himself in a, in a, in a, just a, a terrible state of grief. And he writes, you know, go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside and after that, silence. I love the honesty of of C.S. Lewis here because what David does in this psalm is not easy and it's not a quick fix. But silence doesn't necessarily mean hopelessness. David waits in silence, but notice that he knows that he's waiting in silence because of where his salvation comes. He knows that he has a hope to cling to. God might be silent, but he's not absent. And David knows this to be true because he knows God to be both powerful and loving. Notice that at the end of this psalm, he points to that. One thing God has spoken, two things I've heard. You, O God, are strong and that you are loving. David goes to God who is both strong, powerful, and loving. And we can do this too. How is God powerful? We see in his power. You know, the season of Epiphany, the opening slides for this Sunday, you know, showed a little blurb for Epiphany says that, you know, Epiphany is a season where the revealed power of God and mission of God in Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, we reflected on the the power of God, the revealed glory of God that comes to Jesus in his baptism when the heavens are ripped open, right? When the, the Spirit descends on Christ. After that, we continue to see his power when Jesus heads out into the desert, when he is confronted with stress and suffering. And what does he do? He shows us his power in that he stays strong. He is tempted by Satan, you know, super hungry, and Satan says to him, you know, turn these rocks into bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus' well-being didn't come from what he could do, but from what God, who God was. He knew that he lived through God alone. And that's just his power, though. Power to overcome temptation. What about his love? Why does David mention his love? Well, because on the cross, Jesus had you and me in mind. His love for us is what led him to the cross. And he died to set us free from the truth behind the stress and anxiety and suffering in our lives. See, because of the cross, it's all a lie. Because of the cross, we will never be alone. 
Because of the cross, we will always be loved and accepted by the greatest dad and always have everything that we need. Nothing we can do can ever change his mind. Because of the cross, we can know that Jesus has bought us back. Salvation comes from God. It's ours. This makes all the difference for us when we face our suffering. How does this exactly work itself out? I want to introduce you to two people, Bob and Mary. Bob is a 35-year-old, single, white, attractive, and athletic person. He earns over $100,000 a year and lives in the sunny, sunny Toronto Beach area. He's highly intellectual, spends his free time reading and going to museums. That's Bob. Then there's Mary. Mary and her husband live in snowy, snowy Sudbury, where they earn a combined income of $35,000. Mary is 65 years old. She's black, overweight, plain in appearance. She's highly sociable and spends most of her free time in activities related to her church. Oh yeah, and she's also on dialysis for ongoing kidney problems that will ultimately end her life early. Mary has health problems. Mary lives in relative uh, poverty and doubtless has endured a lifetime of discrimination and Bob seems to have it all, the good life. But psychologists say that Mary is probably happier, more filled with joy. Why? Because Mary has hope in her suffering. Mary has a rock-solid identity. Despite constant discrimination, she can hold on to one thing, that her life is secure in Jesus. Mary is also surrounded by those who love her. Doubtless, she has been forced to sit in silence before, to pour out her heart to God in prayer, like David, and to rely fully, not partially, on the power of the cross. And that's the point. It's through our stress, through our anxiety, and through our suffering that we come to know and love Jesus because he's not absent in it. He walks through it with us. And he promises not to rid us of stress, overwhelming thoughts, seasons of anxiety, but to never abandon us when we walk through them. And that none of them will actually define us. Jesus, you see, is making all things new and knows where we're headed. And he provides us a rock-solid identity for a well-being that's invincible to outside stress and pressure. He is our firm foundation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for testimonies like David's that means so much to us in our lives today. We thank you also for your gospel that provides us, the people who experience stress, anxiety, and suffering in this life, that we can look to a Savior 
who has paid it all, who has taken our sin on his shoulders and has died to set us free from the lies of our thoughts. Father, give us your Holy Spirit that we may cling to the hope of your salvation through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.